Let us pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, your grace is sufficient for us, and we pray that you would use us, especially Cameron, uh, broken uh, vessels who you have made whole uh, through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would speak a word through him today. For, Lord, we trust that when the word is sent out, it never returns void, but accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks, Andrew. Um, this is class number three of uh, this series, Your Worst Nightmare. Class one was preparing for your worst nightmare. Class two was hope, doubt, and confusion in your worst nightmare. And this last class is the one I'm most excited about, and this is joy in your worst nightmare. I'm going to, again, issue my three caveats. Number one, uh, we're still very early in the process, uh, just in month number three, and I don't know what it'll look like in, you know, a year. So I can only speak for right now. Secondly, I'm only speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for my wife. I'm not speaking for anyone else who's lost a child. And number three, I hopefully will look composed up here, but I don't want you to get the idea that I'm composed all the time. Like, I really am a train wreck behind closed doors plenty, Okay. Um, so those are, those are kind of the three caveats. Um, I want to start out this class. Um, you know, people say all kinds of things to you when you're in, in my situation and when you've suffered a loss. And uh, something that a lot of people said that is true and that's hopeful and it's a really good thing is they say, you know, you're going to see your son again someday. Like, you'll see him again one day. And that's a true thing. And that's something that I hold on hope to. Every, every time I go to bed at night, I'm like, one day closer. And it's a great thing to, to be in a position where you're just really not afraid to die. I talked to another friend of mine who lost a child over 30 years ago, and he said, ever since then, I'm not afraid to die because I'm going to see my daughter again. And that's really a blessing. Simultaneously, the, the downside of that statement is, one thing you might hear is, the next time I'm going to be happy is when I die. The next time I'm going to be joyful is when I see my son again in heaven. And, you know, I'm 34 God willing, statistics say I've got another 40, 50 years to go. And uh, the idea of the next time I'm going to be joyful again, if it's, in, you know, if it's 40, 50 years from now, given where I am right now, that is, that's daunting. <laughs> it's, not, it's not particularly encouraging. And so, um, and so the question you know, people face when they experience a trauma is, will I ever be joyful again? Will I, will I ever feel the same again? And uh, the promises of Scripture, the promise of Christ is yes, like, Yes, you will have joy again in your life. That is the promise of the redemption of Christ. Uh, you know, too often we think of the benefits of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection as when we die. Jesus is just there to get me into heaven when I die. That is a forfeiture of the benefits of knowing Christ here and now. He promises eternal life here and now, too. He promises joy here and now, too. That doesn't mean that there's not pain and suffering. We all know that. But he does the promises of eternal life that he makes are not just deferred to heaven. They're also, they're also meant to be enjoyed in this life too. And so that's what I'm going to attack today is um, the idea that you can have joy in your deepest suffering. You can have joy uh, in the wake of your worst nightmare. Um, I'll start today with an email that I received on November the 12th. That was the day after Cam died. And it was from some family friends and they, um, they had lost a child 17 years before. Uh, to give you a little bit of context for the story, these people, they had a child who was born with a respiratory condition, and that child had a 90% chance of dying. And miraculously, the child lived. And so they had to kind of reconcile the possibility that they may, have, they may lose a child. Well, they had another child, and that child um, had many health issues. And uh, when that child, I think, was in their late teens, early 20s, um, died in surgery unexpectedly. And so uh, this is the letter that he wrote to me. The thing I love about this email 
is the title was, Get This to Cameron. You know, get this to Cameron. And it spoke of this urgency, like this is something that he really needs to hear. This is something that he really needs to know. And here's what he wrote. He said, Judy and I are devastated by the loss of your son, Cam. We don't know what to say other than to share our experience. You don't, you don't know, I think, that our son was born with a respiratory virus that was 90% fatal. I did not know that was, coming, that was going to happen, and a number of miraculous things occurred that we can talk about later. But the important thing is that as his birth was imminent, I was wrestling with the possibility that he would not live, even though his condition was unknown to me. There are two passages of Scripture which gave me an unspeakable hope and resolve. The most important of these was David's experience with Bathsheba and the birth of their son out of the terrible beginning of their relationship. David was brought low by the frail and failing condition of his son and fasted with sackcloth and ashes. When it was apparent to him that his son had died, he put off his mourning clothes, contrary to the customs, and did not sit Sheba, the Jewish mourning. This confused his servants, who asked him about it. His answer stirred our hearts with protection at the time of, of our son's birth. From the back door attack of the, the, the ultimate enemy of man, David said to his servants, But he is now dead. Why should I fast? I cannot bring him back to me. I will go to him, but he will not return to me. The surety of David's belief in God's provision in the next life gave strength to this trial. But it was not the end of our story, just a step along the way. When our daughter died in Chicago 17 Septembers ago, God called his word back and his promise back to me. I could no longer go to her, but surely as I live and breathe and worship, I will go to her. This comfort led us through the years of grief that Judy and I faced at the time with the active promise from our father that if, he would lean, if we would lean into the grief... He would surely bring us to, he would get us through it to a point where the death of our precious daughter would no longer sting and that her memory in every way would bring us joy. And so according to the promise, has it done? This is our prayer for you. And I believe the earnest, I believe the earnestness of the promise of God has for you. God bless. He received this. He, he received the news about our child when he was in Chicago the same city where his daughter died, even though they're Birmingham residents. So here's what stuck out. He said, our prayer was, our kind of bargain with God, was if we would lean into the grief, we would suffer fully, that he would turn all of our sorrow into joy. That's a promise for right now. And so then a friend of mine, he's a pastor up in New York, he sent me a talk that he had done on John 16. And I started to read it, and I was like, I can get down with this. This is something that I can hold on to. This is what Jesus says to his disciples. He's, getting, he's preparing them for his death. He knows it's coming. And, and, he, uh, and he knows how bad it's going to be for them. And this is what Jesus says to his disciples. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Okay, so this idea, this thinking, that is the property of God to turn sorrow into joy, to turn anguish into delight and mourning into gladness. This is, this is the hope that really does kind of fuel my days, that God can redeem anything, even the worst things like your child's death. So there are three points that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make uh, that kind of flow out of John 16. The first is that suffering and joy can coexist. They can occur at the same time. You can experience both. The second is that suffering actually can result in deeper joy in your life. 
And the third one, which is going to be the main point where I'm going to spend most of the time, is that God turns suffering into joy. And so the first point, suffering and joy can coexist. Here in John 16, when, when Jesus says that he will turn their sorrow into joy, you have to understand that that's not a moment. That's not an instant. That is a process. It's a continuous thing that God is doing uh, for the disciples that he's doing for me. And so while they're moving along this continuum, there is a coexistence of joy and sorrow at the same time. The two things can happen together. Now, one thing to, I think it's important to define joy. Like, what are we talking about? Because there's a difference between pleasure and joy or, say, happiness and joy. Um, and here's the deal. With, with happiness, which some people debate whether happiness is a part of joy, and, and it's all kind of semantics. But, um, but anyhow, happiness, first off, is usually circumstantially dependent. Things have to be going right for you in your circumstances to be happy. You ha- your job needs to be going well or finances are going well or you're succeeding, or your marriage is going well, or your kids aren't throwing tantrums, or whatever it is, but you, you know, you're dependent on your circumstances to be happy. A second thing is that happiness is, is very often self-focused. Things are working out for me. Alabama beat LSU, right? I'm happy. What about the LSU fans, right? You know, um, yeah, we won the game. What about the losers? So a lot of times happiness is self-focused. And finally, happiness is often driven by your control. We bought the concert tickets. Man, that was fun. I bought the plane ticket. I went skiing. Boy, that was great. Um, and so, so that's kind of the nature of happiness. Your control, self-focused, and dependent on your circumstances. Joy is different. First off, joy transcends circumstances. You can be in prison. Uh, you can be in the middle of a divorce. You can be in the wake of a, of a tragic loss. And you can still have joy. No matter how bad your circumstances are, you can still have joy. Because joy, second point, joy flows out of intimacy, worship, and service of God. And, you know, no matter where you are, no matter how bad your circumstances, the Lord is still there. The possibility of of intimacy with the Lord is always there. The the possibility of worshiping the Lord is always there. And and, and so is serving the Lord. So so joy, joy is a hot commodity. Because no matter how bad your life is, you can still have joy. Secondly, uh, joy is, uh, sorry, the last thing is that joy does not flow out of your control. Joy comes by grace. You cannot make yourself joyful. You cannot stir yourself into a joyful frenzy. Uh, Joy comes by grace from the Lord. It comes out of dependency and intimacy with the Lord. So there's a difference between being happy and being joyful. And if you've ever felt the joy of the Lord, you know that it is much deeper, much richer than like circumstantial happiness. Circumstantial happiness is, is very fleeting. And it's, you know, it's great. I'm, I'm, I love it. I, I love it when Alabama beats LSU, right? But, um, but, uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it only goes about that deep. Whereas joy, joy goes very, very deep. Um, so, so here's the deal. Um, you know, in First Peter, he, is, so a lot of people call First Peter the book of suffering in the New Testament. And this is what Peter says to these, to these people that he's writing this, to whom he's writing this letter who are in deep suffering. They're in a great deal of pain. He says, in this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your face, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. See that redundancy. You rejoice with joy. That is inexpressible and filled with glory. Okay, so you are in the middle of tries, trials, but you have inexpressible joy. I will tell you, 
this sounds crazy, but my child's uh, funeral was one of the most joyful experiences of my entire life. You know, that's the, that's the day I'm burying my kid. But in that sanctuary, it was the, some of the deepest joy I've ever experienced in my entire life. Just the, the gospel was so real. The gospel was so true. The reality that my child is in heaven, will never suffer again, that he has seen the face of Jesus, uh, that he knows so much more about God than I ever will know or anyone on this, elf, or anyone on this earth knows right now. That it was just, it was unbelievable. It was deep, deep joy. And so that is just to say, to finish the point, that even though you suffer, you can still have joy. I don't think you can necessarily have happiness while you're suffering, but you can certainly have joy. Okay, the second point, suffering can actually yield deeper joy in your life. Again, sounds very contradictory, sounds very contrary. Um, But John Piper, in uh, a Gospel Coalition conference in 2010, he defined the gospel in terms of joy. And he said this, this is is really brilliant in my opinion. And and by the way, I wouldn't throw this out there as like the definition of the gospel. This is just kind of a... Uh, a variation of the gospel defined in terms of joy. But he says, the gospel is the good news that God has presented your deepest joy in the person of Jesus Christ. And he has done everything to free you from and tear down the things that you can keep you from knowing your deepest joy in Jesus. Okay, so Piper, um, Piper is saying that the, you know, the gospel work is that the thing that brings you joy is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus. And the gospel is that God, through Jesus, has torn down all of the things that can keep you from Jesus. Okay? And so, one of the things that I... By the way, I think a lot of times we talk about the gospel a lot. The gospel, the gospel. We talk about what Jesus has done. We talk about the cross. We talk about his perfect life. We talk about his resurrection. And that's, that's, that's true. That's great. That is the message. The gospel is the message. But we need to understand... The, the prize at the end of the gospel is the person, Jesus. Jesus is the prize. Jesus is the source of life. He's the source of our joy. And so what I have found to be true is um, that so often uh, we are, like Jonah says in Jonah 2.8, we are people who cling to worthless idols. We are so busy uh, grabbing on to things that we think will satisfy us, that we think will make us content, whether it's job success or financial security or status or people's approval or perfectly dressed children on Sunday morning. We think these things will satisfy us. They will bring us joy. And that's our nature as sinners. Our nature as sinners is to constantly, you know, Calvin says we're idol factories. We are constantly building up idols. But here's the thing. When everything hits the fan and you have been completely knocked to the ground, your idols are not worth Something I can't say in this room. They're not worth anything. They're not. They're not worth poop. We'll just say that. Um, idols are worthless. That's the terminology Jonah uses for idols. He says worthless idols. And so when you're at the bottom, you get this great deal of clarity. You get an accurate appraisal of the value of your idols. Um, and Lamentations. Lamentations is a great book. Only five chapters. And it is dark. I mean, it is after the Babylonians have conquered Israel. They have run through Jerusalem. And, I mean, people have starved to death. People have been killed violently. And Jeremiah is sitting there kind of observing everything that has happened. It is brutal. And one of the things that God says, or that Jeremiah says is, 
I called to my allies, but they betrayed me. My priest and my elders perished in the city while they searched for food to keep themselves alive. Okay, his allies, the, the Israelites were constantly uh, betraying God. God would say, don't make alliances with other countries. Trust me. I'll protect you. I'll be your security. Don't go running to worthless idols. Don't go running to foreign countries to protect you. And um, they continue to do it over and over and over again. And so here at the bottom, Jeremiah sits there and he says, I called to my allies and they betrayed me. You could say, I called to my idols and they betrayed me. About a week after uh, Cam died was the Alabama-Auburn game. You know, I've probably figured it out by now. I'm a big Alabama fan. And so, you know, Alabama loses in the most awful, you know, humiliating, painful way possible. And, you know, and I'm disgusted for about five minutes. And I'm sitting on the staircase at my friend's house kind of thinking about, like, how did this happen? Like, how did we miss this many field goals? How, how did they not call a legal man downfield? How, you know, how did we play so bad on offense? Blah, 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 blah. And then I'm like, really, Cameron? Do you really think that that is going to, it it's just like the Holy Spirit said, do you really think that's going to do anything for you right now? Because here's the deal. If Alabama had won, it would have been really nice for about two hours. And then I would have gone home, and I would have walked by my child's room, and I would have seen his bed was empty and known that he was dead. And you know what? Let me just tell you. Alabama winning the Iron Bowl is not going to help me right there. It's not going to heal me. It's not going to bring me joy. It's not going to reverse circumstances. It's worthless. And when you're at the bottom... Your idols, you really get an accurate appraisal of how utterly worthless your idols are. I mean, I, you know, no matter how wealthy you may be, no matter how many friends you may have, no matter how many weddings you've been in, no matter how good-looking your fiancé is, uh, you know, no, no matter how elaborate your wedding is, uh, no matter how much money is in the bank, when you're at the bottom, <laughs> it cannot do anything for you. It cannot heal you. It cannot redeem you. And so in that circumstance, you're like, you know what? In reality, the only thing that can redeem me is Christ. He's the only one who can heal me. He's the only one to have a chance of seeing redeem me. And so consequently, you find that in in suffering, you're actually in line with truth. You actually can see reality. And you run to Jesus. And it's been, you know, I've had unbelievable sorrow over the last three months and just lament and anguish. And I have been very blessed personally that I've really experienced the presence of the Lord in a very, very deep, very beautiful way. And I hope that this kind of uh, awareness of how shallow and empty my idols are will stay with me. Probably, I'll probably run back to my idols because I'm so depraved. But I hope that I can come back here and remember uh, just the beauty and the joy of knowing Jesus and running away and rejecting my idols. So that's point number two. Okay, the last point. Now it's time to have fun. This is the property of Jesus, the property of God, to turn sorrow into joy. The text I'm going to work on for this is Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, possibly one of the best books in the entire Bible. Unbelievable. Um, And so just to give you a little bit of context... Jeremiah is the last prophet before the Israelites are sent into exile. The Israelites have been warned for centuries, quit running away from me, quit making alliances, quit bringing idols into the temple. 
repent, turn back to me. And finally, God has said, it's over. Like the only way I can bring you back to me is through exile. And what's going to happen is the Babylonians are coming and the Babylonians are bad to the bone and they are going to conquer you and they're going to take you out of your land. They're, They're going to deport you. And so that is what, that's a lot of what is going on in the book of Jeremiah is kind of giving them the, the, final, the final news. But there is this section in Jeremiah uh, 30 through 33 where God is speaking into the future after the exile to encourage the Israelites about the restoration that he's going to bring. So I can't imagine what the people who, who heard this originally were thinking, but I can imagine that the people in Babylon, after they were exported, that they were reading this as their hope of restoration. And so we got to understand that for the Jews to be taken out of Jerusalem, out of Judah, was a huge deal. Uh, they were very, very tied to their land. The, you know, that was the promise. God promised the land. And the, the land was very tied to the presence of God. And so for them to be taken out of the land was, A, to be taken off their home ground, but also to be taken out of the presence of God, to be taken away from the temple. And secondly, too, it was, a, it was a feeling of a breach of the covenant. God had promised, I'm your people. I'll always protect you. They had seen throughout centuries of history that God had always come to their rescue. He had always protected them. And now they feel like he's been betrayed. They've been betrayed. God's turned their back on them. One thing that's important to note here is that this, in some ways, is a false analogy because the Israelites, they had, they had been rebelling. Like they kind of, they kind of deserved this. So... But keep in mind, there were faithful people who were, who were victims, who were victims in this, people who were faithful to the Lord, who were victims. And so, you know, whether your sorrow and your worst nightmare is because you really screwed up or it's because you're a victim of, you know, the fallenness of the world, uh, the, promise, the promise is still there for the Lord to restore you and to turn your sorrow into joy. Okay, so Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 1. I'm just going to go verse by verse. I'm going to please all my PCA friends. I'm going to be so exegetical here. Um, at, that, at, at the time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Okay, now one thing to understand here is while this is happening, it's a divided kingdom. There's a northern kingdom, there's a southern kingdom. And so God is promising a reunification. He is promising to bring both the northern kingdom who's in exile and the southern kingdom who's in exile to bring them both back to the land as one. So in a sense, what God is promising is a better reality than before. Uh, you know, before you're divided, after I restore you, you're going to be unified. You're going to be back in the land. And, you know, and to me, you know, interpreting my experience into this, I, I really do think that there is the promise that my life will be richer, more joyful, more beautiful down the road after I've been restored by the Lord uh, than it was before my child died. And so that's, that's, that's something I really think is true. Uh, verse 2, he says, Thus says the Lord, The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. Okay, now one thing you've got to remember here is the people that he is talking to have gone through significant trauma. If you're a person who survived, that means, that means that you're one of the people who didn't starve to death or who wasn't killed violently by the Babylonians. So if you're a survivor, you have seen awful things. You have seen some seriously serious atrocity. And so here's why I'm making this point. It's because, you know, I gave a talk uh, in October before my child died where I talked about the goodness of badness. Johnny Manziel, Martin Luther, and the goodness of badness. And I talked about 
how suffering is a blessing. When I gave that talk, I felt like I really couldn't mention any really, really bad traumas because I'd never really gone through anything. I mean, I, you know, I'd had disappointments, I'd had depression, things like that. But, it's, you know, I didn't feel like I could say, hey, God can, like, God can restore and redeem and work in the loss of your spouse or the loss of your child or uh, the way that you were abused as a child or something like that. I just felt like I wasn't really qualified. I, I, no arrogance here. I kind of feel like I'm qualified to say, even in the worst stuff, even in the worst stuff, I still believe the Lord can redeem it. I, I still believe uh, that if you were sexually abused as a child, I still believe if you've gone to prison, I still believe if you've lost multiple childs, I still believe that the Lord can redeem it. I really do believe that the Lord can redeem the loss of my child in such a way where my sorrow is turned to joy and where I know the Lord more deeply, I love the Lord more deeply, and I have, I have the abundance of life like never before. Next, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Now, when he says far from far away, we can look at that both ways. We can look at that spatially or geographically because the people are out of the land. But spiritually, certainly, certainly the Israelites felt like, God, where are you? They did not feel the presence of God. And, and certainly their experience was not saying, God loves me, he's with me, he's going to be faithful to his promises. But here the Lord says, like, even as I'm deporting you, even as I'm exiling you and taking you, allowing you to be conquered, allowing you to suffer, I still love you with an everlasting love. My, my faithfulness, I continue to love you. So it is not, they're not experiencing that, but it is still theologically true. Uh, I am fortunate that I have experienced the presence of the Lord. I think I'm pretty unusual in that way. I think a lot of people in my circumstances right now are feeling very abandoned by God. Um, but it is important to, to know that theologically it is true that God is still with you, that God still loves you, and he's still faithful. Uh, and, and that's something to anchor into. All right, next. Verse 4, God says, Again, I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Okay, this is a parallelism. Uh, this is redundant. You know, if you wrote this for in your English class, your teacher would say, Redundancy is bad, and so is repetition. Um, God is saying the same thing, but he's doing it for the sake of emphasis. He says, I will build you, like I will, I will rebuild, I will restore you. And then he says, you shall, be re- you shall be built. He's saying that in the passive. He is the actor, we are the recipients. This is the gospel. He is saying, I'm going to be the one who restores you. You cannot rebuild yourself. And, um, and you know, that, that is our hope. It is faith, it is trust in the Lord to redeem us and to restore us. We can't, we can't do this. We cannot heal ourselves. We cannot restore ourselves. We cannot bring back the joy. Only God can do that. We're fully dependent. He's the builder. Um, verse 5. Again, you shall plant... Oh, sorry. This, these next verses, basically, um, in, my, in my interpretation, they're kind of talking about a return to normalcy of some sort. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that I'm ever, ever, things ever, are ever going to be normal for me again. I'm not saying that life will ever be the same. I'm going to be a different person going forward. Uh, And life would be different for the Israelites too, uh, coming back. But he starts to speak of these things that bring you joy kind of returning to you. He says, um, again, you shall adorn yourselves with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. So that's just talking about just celebration and joyfulness there. Uh, He says then, again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. 
the planter shall plant and shall enjoy fruit. So that's almost like a vocational, like a re- vocational restoration. I, I, you know, after a couple of weeks after Cam died, I was just kind of like, I, I am not ever going to be able to enjoy anything ever again. I'm certainly not ever going to be able to enjoy my job again. And I can remember, like, the first time I came back and was teaching on Habakkuk, and I was just like, I was so into it. I was just loving it. And I was rolling through it, and I think the guys in my Bible studies could see how excited I was, and they're like, wow, this guy is so weird. He loves Minor Prophets so much. But, um, but, uh, but it was kind of this real blessing. It was this real grace to say, like, oh, wait a minute. Like, things that I liked before, I probably will like again. Um, and it's been true. I got to go skiing last week, and I was just, like, on fire. It was awesome. It was, it was like, two days of bliss on the snow. And I was like, oh, yeah, I love to ski. Like, this is fun. Like, okay, I, you know, I will be joyful again. I will, I will enjoy my life again. Um, verse 6. For there shall be a day when watchmen will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. Because Zion is the place of worship. It's the presence of the Lord. So this speaks to a spiritual, resur- uh, a spiritual restoration. I have given the traditions of, is- of Israel and-, and the Jews and the way that they worshipped. It-, it was probably for them when they were captive in Babylon, it was always probably second-class worship for them because they weren't in their temple. And so, so there is this promise that there will be the day when you say, Arise and let's go to Zion. You will be back in the presence of the Lord. And so for me, that is, I've been, I've been blessed to experience that early on. But even so, like, you will, you will enjoy your relationship with the Lord. You will return to God. He will come to you. I don't know how long that, I, I, can only, I can't speak for everyone. That can take a really, really long time for people. All of this may take a really, really long time for people. Keep in mind, the Israelites, they were in captivity for 70 years, more than 70 years. And so, um, so we, I don't want to get this idea that this is an instant. But just to say, like, this idea of enjoying your life again, of being whole again, of experiencing the Lord again, those, those things, he's saying, like, those things are on the table. Those things are on offer. I'm going to do that. Then he starts to talk about the mechanism for return. How is it that we return to the Lord? How is it we come back into his presence? And he says in verse 7, 8, and 9, For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people. The remnant of Israel, behold, I will bring them from the north country among them, from the blind and the lame, the pregnant and she who is in labor together. A great company, they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I mean, this is the gospel right here. How is the way that they will come back? Or who are the people who will come back? He lists the lame. He lists people who are pregnant who are in labor. The blind, people who are weak. People who have tapped out and surrendered. He says, how will they come back? With weeping, with pleas for mercy, I will lead them back. A lot of times, people, when they're in the midst of horrible suffering, they feel like they need to be strong. <laughs> that, is, that's, that just doesn't work. It, you know, that'll last. Uh, my friend who lost his child 30 years ago, he said, um, you know, I tried to be strong and it lasted for a month. And then I snapped and I broke. And... The thing is, uh, I think a lot of times it's uh, not to go all Dr. Phil here, but um, it's hard. It's hard for people to cry, or people think that that is, you know, socially unacceptable, and you, you know, you shouldn't show your emotions and all that kind of stuff. I, I think you are 
you are um, you are uh, allowing the Lord to bring about your restoration when you allow yourself to be undone. Um, you that, the, there is no way that you can bring yourself back from this by putting on your bootstraps and you know and, and bucking up. It just is not going to happen. Someone. Oh, I'm not going to say that. Um, but I will say this. There's this pop song by the band Fun. You know, Carry On. We all know it. We've heard it on commercials. Uh, young kids know it. I've heard it in the church fan. And it says, when you're lost and all alone, carry on. I mean, you know what? I can flush that down the toilet because that is nonsense. That is garbage. Yeah, right. Tell me, tell me the day after my kid's funeral, when you're lost and all alone, carry on. While I'm sitting there, you know, like, prostrate on the bathroom floor crying no don't carry on tap out like it is by he says here is with pleas for mercy it is with um it is with weakness that we are led back and so you need to understand at the bottom you're you are blessing yourself by being weak you are blessing yourself by allowing yourself to cry you are blessing yourself by saying i have no hope of redeeming myself my only hope of redemption is god I've used way too much potty humor today. I've been in youth ministry for way too long. Okay. All right. Well, you can't do junior high ministry if you don't know potty humor, though. Anyhow. Okay. So next, next part. It says, I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Keep in mind, their path back to Israel is through the desert. Dry, no vegetation, no food very stark. And what does God say? He said, I will make them walk by brooks of water. That's powerful language for people who live in such an arid climate. And man, man, oh man, if you know, if you're thinking about this analogically or metaphorically, and you're a person who is at the very bottom, you've gotten horrible, horrible news. You know, it's a long walk back to Jerusalem and it's a walk through the desert. And the promise that God says is that I will provide brooks of water and I will lead them on a straight path. And I feel like every day, the Lord gives me some measure of grace, some sip of water from a brook in the desert, uh, whether it is an encouraging text message from a friend or a prayer from someone who I do not know or someone bringing a meal or writing a nice letter or just whatever it is that the Lord does. The Lord continues to give me grace day by day walking through the desert. I think this right here may be one of the most encouraging verses in all of this because it's saying this is a long journey and this is a long, long road to hoe and it's a desert and I will be the one to provide grace for you. I'll be the one to support you and to sustain you. Okay, next. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastland far away. He who scattered Israel will gather them and I will keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock for the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from the hand, from hands too strong for him. The only point I'm going to make here is notice from hands too strong for him. Just again, to buttress the point that your suffering, your grief is far more than you can handle. It is a hand that is too strong for you. But God says he will redeem them from hands that are too strong for them. Okay, last part, verses 12 to 14. I want you to know that this is the part I get really excited about. And if you're a person who likes football enough football talk, you know when you talk about a running back breaking the daylight. So if you're an Auburn fan, you remember in the Iron Bowl, the first touchdown, Nick Marshall fakes the handoff to the running back, 
Alabama's linebacker misses his assignment. He goes with the running back. He's supposed to stay with the quarterback. And if you see the view from behind Nick Marshall, it's like a straight pasture to the, to the end zone. And so he is breaking the daylight, and he's like, it is a touchdown. Now, he's not in the end zone yet. He's not in the end zone yet. He still has to run. There's still, you know, there's still a 45-yard dash. And, you know, there are going to be people who are going to chase him. He could trip. But he can see the end zone. He is breaking the daylight. And that is when I read this in my situation, this is what I feel like. I feel like a running back who has made it through the line of scrimmage, who has gotten past the linebackers, who has split the safeties, and I'm breaking the daylight. It says this, They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion, and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. And he is talking about they're, they're back. They're back in Israel. He says they'll be radiant. And where is their radiance? It is in the goodness of the Lord. It is not in the circumstances that they're back in their land. It's not that they're back to the temple. It's not that they're back to their jobs. It is out of the goodness of the Lord. It is God himself who will bring them radiance. Then it says, over the, over the, over the gain, the wine, and the soul, over the young and the flock and the herd, their life shall be like, watered gar- like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. I love that he says that they will languish no more. Because languish is when you're languishing, you feel like you're stuck. You feel like you're stuck in your misery. And this is saying you are not stuck. Uh, you will languish no more. You will be freed from your misery. Then shall the young woman rejoice and dance, and the young men and the old, and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priest with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness. This promise, these people have been traumatized, taken out of their land, and he is saying they will be satisfied again, and they'll be satisfied with my goodness. That is the promise. So here's, I want to finish with two quick stories. It's Kleenex time. First story is this. Five days after Cam died, I was crying. Uh, there were a bunch of people in our house, so I went into his room. And I finished crying, and just I remembered what John saw in Revelation when he saw Jesus, and Jesus said, I am making all things new. That is, not, that is a progressive verb. I am continually making all things new. And it was like the Holy Spirit just gave me this little faith in that moment. Like, he can redeem everything. And so... One of the things that would always make me really, really sad was seeing Cam's little boy underpants <laughs> because it reminded me that he was a little boy, you know, and he was a great potty trainer. He was the fastest boy potty trainer in all the world. <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm looking at his underpants <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, I want you to redeem his underpants. I want those to be a symbol of redemption for me. Four days later, we're driving to Atlanta. Lauren is crying and crying and crying. We don't have, of course, it's my car. We don't have any Kleenex. We don't have any paper towels. We don't have anything. And I'm, you know, I'm 10 and 2. I'm driving. And I look over, and Lauren has a pair of his underpants. And she is wiping away his tears with a pair of underpants that she had in his diaper bag. And I said, if God can redeem the little boy underpants, he can redeem everything in this. If these can become this token of sadness... And they can become this, you know, this symbol of like her being comforted when we had nothing else to wipe away her tears. It's Revelation 21, I will wipe away all their tears. I was like, he can redeem everything. He can absolutely do it. The second thing 
Oh, where are you? Ah, here it is. Okay. This, um, this is Cam's drumstick. He loved music. One time we were at a restaurant, and they had a jazz band, and he left the table to go up front to dance in front of the jazz band. <laughs> Very charming. And the drummer, at the end of the song, gave him his drumstick. Okay? So this, uh, this reminds me of how Cam is loving worship in heaven. He's loving to sing and dance in heaven. Okay? Also, the day after Cam died, let me just tell you, the day after something bad happens, when you wake up the next morning, it's awful. It's like you've woken up to it all again. I can remember I woke up, I immediately started crying. Lauren woke up, she immediately started crying. I left the house, I kind of walked around the neighborhood with my little hoodie on, trying to cover my face, but I was crying. I finally walked back to our garage, and I just fell on the ground. I cried like I've never cried in my entire life. And right next to me was this drumstick. And I, like, kind of grabbed the drumstick and was clutching the drumstick. And, uh, and here's, what it, here's what this symbolizes to me, is... This symbolizes the absolute bottom of my suffering, but it also symbolizes the reality that my child's in heaven and that I'm going to be there with him again. And so I keep this, keep this drumstick with me a lot, and I'll rub it all the time. And every time I rub it, I say, Lord, I pray that you would turn all of my sorrow into joy. I turn that you would turn all of my mourning into gladness. And I feel like the prayer is this bridging of the gaps, this bridging of the reality of heaven that we can in some ways experience on the, in the fall on earth, and bringing my suffering closer to it. And I just want to finish with this. This is a statement that I make because the Lord is good and the Lord is faithful, and he, is, he, through different things, has shown me that he is good to redeem all things, he is capable to redeem all things. And that is, I want to finish this by saying, if you know me in 30 years, I am confident that when I talk about my child and when I talk about these days, that I will radiate with a joy that will blow you away. I'm confident the Lord will do that. You can pray that the Lord will do that. I'm going to continue to pray the Lord will do that. And if you're at the absolute bottom, if you're in the gutter, the Lord can do it for you too. He is capable to redeem all things. He redeemed the death of a sweet, perfect Nazarene and restored the whole world through the death of a man. He can redeem your life. He can redeem all of your sorrow and joy. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we worship you. We exalt you. We praise you. We give you thanks for our circumstances, Lord, because we know that you will show yourself and you will show your ability to redeem. I ask you to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.